We're recording inside the Cohab Podcast Studio space under the Texas Street Bridge by the Red River in downtown Shreveport, Louisiana, and this is the 3180 Podcast. What is going on in the 318? What is our current identity? Shreveporters can make this place into the city we want it to be. It's time for Shreveport to make a 180. Every Thursday, we are having conversations about doing just that. We're talking to people who are making the difference in our city. I'm Josh Clayton. I'm Thomas Young. Welcome to the 3180 Podcast. Welcome to episode 17 of the 3180 Podcast. This is another guest host edition. In this edition, we have Jordan Ring from MLK Health interviewing Liz Swain of the Downtown Development Authority. So please listen in and enjoy Jordan Ring interviewing Liz Swain. Hey Liz, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. I am really happy to be here. I want to thank you for asking me to come and talk about Downtown Shreveport, which is one of my favorite things. Absolutely. I was talking with Josh the other day, and he said that you are by far the most requested guest what? on this show. No yeah. kidding. Mm-hmm. How many people have requested? Well, that's something you'll have to ask Josh, <laughs> but I do know that um, when he talks to people, they can't wait for Liz to come on just the show. Just about everybody. Like, oh, you got to talk to Liz. Well, oh, I'm, we I'm talk- just so excited about that because you know what that means. It means that people are as excited about downtown Shreveport as I am, which Well, is- they also know that you're the authority on it. So when well, we it's because of the about, Downtown Development right, Authority. Right. The authority. The authority. And I think that's a, a great segue to one of my first questions. For, you know, for those who are listening who might mm-hmm. have an idea of what the Downtown Development Authority is, I was hoping that maybe you could kind of dive deeper into what it does and then why is it important to have someone like you advocating for downtown? Or another way, what would happen to our downtown goals if we didn't have someone yeah. like you champion? Um, downtown Shreveport? I think that's a really great question, and it's a whole bunch of them, so let me just jump right in. The Downtown Development Authority, a lot of people uh, have heard of it, and it's like, oh, okay, but they don't really think about it. Right. So it was created, actually, because the city, way back in the 1970s, which is ancient history to some people, (laughs) realized that there needed to be an entity, Mm. and all they did every single day seven days a week, 24 hours a day, was think about how to make our historic, fabulous center city better. Mm -hmm. Because in the 1970s, things were not going real well in downtown Shreveport. They weren't going well in any downtown across the country. Everything about our communities had changed over the course of a relatively short time. 40 or 50 years ago, people worked downtown, they lived downtown, right. they shopped downtown, they played downtown. It was it was the hub of their existence. And then all of that changed in the blink of an eye, practically. And so downtowns became empty and blighted and uh, secondary and third generation businesses moved in, you know, that you start seeing uh, payday loan businesses or, or, or tattoo parlors. And not to say we're not casting aspersions at businesses, but those were not the original businesses of downtown. And so the city realized that there needed to be some entity because the city administration, they're super busy. They have 200,000 or so people to deal with in a whole bunch of neighborhoods. And they created an ordinance that established the Downtown Development Authority, but to make it really real, uh, it went before the legislature and the legislature 
created the Downtown Development Authority in 1978 through an act of the legislature, and that gave us the power to levy an ad valorem tax, which is a small millage of property tax on only those downtown businesses, those downtown properties. Right. It's 8.64 mills. So why is the Downtown Development Authority important? Why did we need one? Well, we needed one because let's think about how we govern our community. You have city council members, right? in each district. And the city council members are responding to voters, to people who live in the district and vote in the district. So at that point, downtown had almost no constituents who voted. So even though we have always had, we've always been represented by the city council person from District B, and that would now be Lavette Fuller. Right. Before Lavette, it was Jeff Everson. Before Jeff, it was Monty Walford, and goes up back and back and back. And they've always been very responsive to downtown. There were not voters downtown. So the belief was that there needed to be this organization that was really advocating very strongly for the, the rights, the development, the, the future of downtown. And that's why uh, the Downtown Development Authority was started and that's why it is so important. And truly, that's all we do every day I tell people that I'm pretty darn boring now. I used to have a whole lot of hobbies and a whole lot of interests, and now they can really sort of be narrowed, sort of narrowed down into what's going on downtown. I can talk about it forever. I can bore you to tears. I can make you laugh, cry. <laughs> well, we're definitely grateful for all yeah. that you're doing. You have Thanks. done a fantastic job. Um, so you had to break me off because I was just going into my downtown thing. But well, we've, we've got a lot to cover, and we, we can't do. wait to hear all that you have to say. Um, but you mentioned kind of early on that in the mm -hmm. 70s there was this shift that took mm -hmm. place overnight that just led to this mass exodus of our downtowns. Yes. Um, can you speak to that shift? I can. I can. It was really interesting. It was happening all over the country, and there are some things that were completely out of our control, and we responded to them in the same way that everyone else in the country did. So way back when downtown was the place that everybody lived and worked and did their playing, uh, it was because that's where all the jobs were. When you think about how Shreveport developed, we started from the river and then we moved inward, and downtown was our first hub and people did not have cars back in the early 1800s, mid 1800s, up until the really into the 1900s. So you wanted to be near where your job was, where your source of revenue was. And so when in the 1930s and 40s, when cars became more affordable and more people wanted them, became, they became one of those things that you know meant that you had arrived and people started purchasing cars and it became easier for people to live farther away from where they worked. So people started moving outside of downtown. The big change happened after World War II when all of the GIs came home from Europe and from the Pacific and the GI Bill kicked in and there was lots of free or low interest money to build or buy homes in the suburbs in the suburbs, that was the key. And so all of the outlying suburbs started being developed. So you had cars to get there, you had money to build your home there, and when people started moving there, the jobs and the businesses started following. Then the another big issue that impacted downtowns across the country was interstate highways. 
in the 1950s when um, President Eisenhower decided that we needed to have, and it started prior to that, but the 1950s and 60s was really when we saw most of the building, when Interstate 20 came through and right. then later on Interstate 49, what that gave us was larger, straighter, faster roads to get farther away from our downtowns. And that's when you really started seeing with I-49 that made uh, you know the southern loop possible that made far south uh, gated communities easier to get to um, and so we started seeing really that flight from right. our downtown and it then it just became the thing everybody wanted to live in a community where they'd have a big yard and a big house and downtowns were moving away from the big mansions. They were slowly being demolished in cities around the country. And it wasn't, nobody wanted to live downtown. I mean. You just worked, you went to you work downtown, downtown and then you went back it to your It was home. very much an eight to five community. You would drive in two minutes before it was time to sit at your desk and you know pull out your notepad and then you would leave at two minutes after five. And so there was no 24-7 life in downtown, and our downtowns showed it. Right. Well, it's fascinating um, to just to see the effects of the automobile. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm excited to see that people are now thinking about how do we get back downtown. Yes. Right? We're starting to see that enthusiasm. Global and trends. Absolutely. Us. Yes. Um, but as we're, we're thinking about downtown and we are asking ourselves like how do we bring downtown back I think an important question we need to ask as a city is how do we define what a successful downtown Streetport will look like um, because there's been this consistent theme across previous episodes that Streetport has this knee-jerk reaction to compare downtown Streetport to downtown Dallas and we're not going to be Dallas and we don't need to be Dallas but how do we manage our expectations of what a downtown Streetport a, a, a successful downtown Streetport will look like that is a, an interesting question because every person that you talk to is going to have a different answer to it. Every person you talk to. When I talk to people of a certain age who were alive when downtown Shreveport was vibrant back in the 40s and 50s, their idea of a successful downtown Shreveport is going to be one filled with department stores. Mm. That is probably not going to happen again. Very, very retail heavy is very, not. Very retail heavy. That's not really happening anywhere. It's not happening anywhere, and it's not going to happen because of Amazon. Right. I mean, our brick and mortar retail stores are suffering. Um, we're seeing complete changes in entire business models out there. Um, there are others who might say that a successful downtown would have more oh, let's say, live music venues. I, you know, so it's very individual. Sure. What I believe makes a successful downtown is something that we can look at and be proud of. We have a mix of things that are appealing to a variety of people. We have live music venues. We have residential that has different feels to it. Some may be industrial feelings. Some may be more sheetrock and you know, the South Shreveport feel. We have art and culture, which we have in abundance downtown. Mm -hmm. We have officing uh, opportunities. We have business opportunities. So I think that having that mix of things, which we are seeing, and let me tell you that there's no magic wand for getting all of this stuff. You can't just wave a magic wand and say, I want this, 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 and this. Because even if you could, I don't know that that would be the right thing to do. 
I think the best thing for our downtown is slow, steady, organic development mm. that takes root and finds its uh, finds its supporters and really becomes part of the fabric of our downtown, which we are seeing with things like the Robinson Film Center and art space. And that is really a niche that the common is looking right. to fill. And so we are definitely seeing that in, in various, very exciting ways. And I know one of the things that Josh has talked about off air is the need to develop in clusters, right? That we don't need to have businesses opening several blocks apart because we're not going to be funneling people in the same way that you do at the Robinson and Rhino and Arts Patient Parish, right? It's very walkable in those things. So when people come to you, do they come to you that they have a building in mind or do they say, I want to invest in downtown and then you guide them um, through that process of identifying properties downtown? They typically don't come and say, I want to invest in downtown, what do I need to do? That's pretty rare. Right. They generally come with an idea in mind mm -hmm. and they are looking for a building or location that suits that idea. And we try to direct them to the appropriate building depending on the square footage they need, the money they have to spend, whether they want to rent or own. There are a variety of things that go into that calculation. And we don't tell them where they have to be, but we give them advice. I right. mean, we're good with advice. We'll say, clustering is good. I mean, all you have to look at is, sure. is the auto mall and, and Uri Drive where there's restaurant after restaurant after restaurant. People love to have options on things. So it is great to have clusters of things. But at the same time, if somebody identifies a building that's a block and a half away, we're not going to well, dissuade them. Right. The beauty of downtown is that even though we have a, a relatively, um, I'm not going to say large downtown, it depends on how much you like to walk, um, mm -hmm. we have seven, eight blocks really that you will walk from one end of Texas Street to the other, from the base of the bridge to First United Methodist Church. So if you can make eight blocks, you have walked the, the length of Texas Street. Um, so it is a walkable downtown. The thing that seems to make it less walkable is in the summer it's really hot, so you don't want to spend that much time outside, and we need more things for people to look at. So as you're walking past a building that's vacant, there's nothing to look at. As you're walking past a building that the facade's not all that attractive, there's nothing much to look at, or that the windows on the front are kind of smoked out, there's nothing to look at. So if you give people think more things to look at as they're walking, that trip will seem much shorter. I noticed too, um, like in older pictures from mm -hmm. probably 60s, 50s, 60s, when it was very busy, for instance, on Texas, all those buildings had awnings mm -hmm. because they were occupied and you put an awning over your door. So if it's raining, if it's really sunny, if it's really hot, like, and now many of those buildings the awnings are the first thing that become a an expense, uh, and and they wear out. They're not they're not brick. They're, mm -hmm. They they need to be repaired. Mm -hmm. So, like and as you see awnings going back up, like oh like the stuff at uh, the Robinson or uh, even next door at On Time. Is that called on time? Yes, on, on time. time fashion. Yeah, That's like, yeah. and they they upgraded theirs, and that really gives it kind of a different feeling. Yeah. And, and I think from growing up, I was you know I've been here since the '70s, mm -hmm. um, 
So like all through the 80s and 90s, it was like there was very little, like all the, the, the all those awnings were sort of taken down and removed. Yes. And, and then the, it gives you this really stark front. It's very stark. It's a, it's a little bit on the bleak side. But a couple of things have happened. You're right that some of the buildings are going back to it. Some of the buildings that are appropriate for awnings, right. like art space. Right. The old Sears building, which is now the lofts. The standard building has put some awnings up. There are certain buildings, obviously, that are more recent in nature that awnings would not right, be appropriate like the, for, uh, like the Petroleum region, Tower. The, or or the Regions Tower. It was built, yeah. that, that was built in the 80s, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- at that point, you built so that you went into the building and then yes. accessed from the inside going up, right. basically, as opposed to many of those older buildings had been, I think we've talked about this before, but they were originally wooden buildings and Mm -hmm. then they would burn up so then everybody in like the early 20s started to build brick fireproof is what they would call it right and then if you look at like a sanborn map you'll see like wood construction wood construction fireproof and they color code each one of those things and from between 20 to i think the next sanborn map is like 26 or 30 uh they all turn that color, that's exactly and, right. and then that's what you still see a lot of, and that's 100 years old at this point, right? That, that's exactly yeah. right. Now, one of the things that we have done since the advent of the, the canopies and the awnings is we've put in street trees. Mm. <clears throat> so there are, there are now vibrant, uh, fairly large in some areas, shade-producing street trees, which really do give you more of a sense of cool um, even on hot days. When you look back at those 1970s, when you look back at the 1920s photos of downtown, there's no, there's not a no. tree in sight. <laughs> there is not a tree in sight. Well, but there was also... But the sidewalks were also narrower, the streets were wider, and they would do angle-in parking. And that, But that's also, they would have, either would be like a trolley stop mm-hmm. or a bus stop mm-hmm. in between each one of those buildings because you would, again, it wasn't... People didn't have cars. Right, and that was much. also still hot, so you didn't want to walk. Eight blocks to get from maybe your house to your office or and you were also you carrying theoretically because you had come downtown to shop right. you had a whole bunch of groceries or clothes or shoes or something that you were hauling back home so it was just inconvenient to walk a number of blocks with right. all your parcels right was there a grocery store there were multiple there were multiple store grocery stores I was trying downtown. to think where where they would be but oh, um, you know you go back and you look uh, we've talked before about downtown being an archaeological dig when you look at any particular building it has been multiple different uses with the exception of like the bank buildings and things like that right. those were built for a reason that regions uh, which was set, set, uh, commercial national bank that was built as a bank but um, more of the smaller buildings you know there have been they've been shoe shops hat shops uh, millinery shops glove shops, pool halls, um, fruit stands, you know, just all sorts of things. So, yes, we we did have grocery stores downtown. And they were just smaller, like a, mm-hmm. more of like a... Grocery markets. Yeah, like a... Mm-hmm. Uh, like a New York City right. grocery store. Yeah, like a bodega style, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. where you would get a sack of groceries, not a right. huge cart full of... And back then, that's how people shop, because right. they didn't have great refrigeration. Right. I'm loving this conversation around the buildings. Um, and we're gonna get, we're gonna come back to the possibilities because I think the more 
you talk about the possibilities, the more you see them. But you posted in an article um, a couple weeks ago a quote by Jeff Siegler, founder of blog mm -hmm. Revitalize mm -hmm. or Die. Mm -hmm. And he says, apathy kills, and nothing screams apathy like long, vacant buildings in the heart of downtown. And yes. I think a lot of people, when they think of downtown Streetport, mm -hmm. they think of these buildings. But you and I have had conversations before that's very interesting about why a number of these properties are vacant. It's not because these are local Streetport people that own them and just don't care. That Some of them are tied up in trust. Some of them are acquired by New York business owners who are just looking for a tax abatement, things like that. So can we kind of talk about why so many of our buildings downtown are you know, um, vacant and, and, and why there's that apathy? Because I don't think a lot of the apathy is native to Shreveport. People. It is not. You are correct. This is not apathy on the part of Shreveporters. This is because a building is tied up because it's got a $1.7 million federal tax lien because mm -hmm. the former owner never play, paid employee withholding taxes. Interesting. Kaboom. You know, so the building may be worth $250,000, but nobody in their right mind, and I can't blame them, is going to go pay $250,000 and then clear up a $1.7 million tax lien on a building that's worth $200,000, if we're right. lucky, and it's going to need a million dollars worth of rehab. So you, you get into situations like that. We've got other buildings that are vacant that people would love to be able to purchase, who've tried to purchase multiple times, also federal tax liens. We have some that are just, their titles are so murky. There have been so many tax purchasers over time that the process of acquiring them and clearing the titles, it just becomes something that fewer and fewer people want to do. There are those buildings that appear from the outside to be intact that are vacant. When you go inside, the roof has collapsed or the interior floors have collapsed. And those buildings, there are, when that happens, there are fewer and fewer people with the knowledge, the money, or the desire to take those buildings on. We are very lucky in that right now we've got multiple of those buildings that are being rehabbed. The You Need a Biscuit building mm -hmm. is one on Milam Street, an iconic, incredible building that started off as a carriage store and then over time was Marcus Furniture for a number of years. Never actually sold You Need a Biscuits in the store. It was just advertising on oh, the side wow. of the building. So th that had collapsed, and there are a couple of people um, who are developing that into apartments. The old Arlington Hotel, the same thing. Yes. The roof had collapsed, and we now are looking at that becoming a distillery downtown, our first ever. We're excited. But there are multiple other properties that have very uh, varying degrees of impairment that make them more difficult to get into the hands of someone who will do something with them. We have properties that have been vacant because either local or absentee owners believe that their worth is something that is not supported by fact. Hmm. The one thing about developers that I have discovered is that while they might be willing to take risks, they want and have to have at the end of the day a return on their investment that pays the way, that pays the freight sure. on the building. We would not expect anything other than that. And if a building costs so much and the rehab costs so much that you don't see light at the end of the tunnel for 15, 20 years, there are a lot of people who just are unable to do that. And so that becomes more and more difficult for us to, to suss out those people who are willing to do it. There are some out there, they're just few and far between. 
So those are the types of things that we're looking at. We have one developer, he's not in Shreveport, he's a multi-millionaire property and business owner, and he owns over 300,000 square feet of properties in downtown Shreveport. Wow. He owns the old Sportran bus terminal, the Johnson building, the Slattery building, the Lane building, a three-story parking garage on Crockett Street, the old Panos Diner. I think that's it, but that's enough. And is really and truly doing nothing with any of them with the exception of officing in the Lane building, which is still an active office building. And is, it's not that he needs money. The man is doing very well. Uh, he has a, a great business model. Um, so how do you incentivize, and through incentivize, I'm not saying give him money. How do you encourage, might be a better word. How do you encourage somebody like this who doesn't live here, who's only invested here in terms of owning buildings, not invested in heart, soul, relatives, you know, anything like that. But how do you encourage him to either do something or sell the buildings? He won't sell the buildings. We've had multiple people who've approached him about the buildings and he's been unwilling to sell. That's so interesting. It is. It is. I don't get it. I personally don't get it. And so it's hard. It's hard for us to figure out how to could you give us a rough estimate? So of, of the properties that have been purchased in the last couple of years, mm -hmm. what is the divide between local families buying up these buildings and then out-of-town investors? Because I gave you the question that mm -hmm. there are a number of local families who are no, putting yeah, their entire are. savings on the line mm -hmm. because they mm -hmm. believe in what Streetport can be and they're willing um, to bet everything because they mm -hmm. want their kids to fall in love with Shreveport and they want their kids mm -hmm. to stay. And that's something that makes me proud Absolutely. about downtown. It's, it's a combination. If you look at it in square footage, mm -hmm. then the out-of-town investors are going to win because the buildings that the out-of-town investors are buying, like the lofts, mm -hmm. that was a New Orleans investor, the Standard, which is the old Commercial National Bank building, that is Chattanooga investors. Their square footage is, is larger. When you look at numbers of buildings, then the locals will win because we've got people like Jim Malsh who are right. doing the old Andrus Ford building. We've got um, some people who are not from Shreveport but live here now who are doing the um, Arlington. We've got uh, Jeff Spikes who just recently purchased a new historic building downtown. We've got uh, Newt Dorsett who has uh, redone several buildings including uh, trying a proof of concept on a the old downtown tire store. And you know, that's a that's a great story in and of itself. You've got this low one-story white concrete block building that not even its mother would say is good looking. <laughs> and it sits on this lot with not a tree in sight. And you think, what in the world can that be that's going to enhance downtown in any way? And they have figured out a way to make it this music, fashion, food, cool venue uh, that brings pe that bring people brings people downtown from miles around. So there's always uh, there are always things that you can envision with buildings if you have enough imagination. Absolutely. Um, I, I want to go back just a little bit. Um, You've told me this really cool story that there are a number of downtown buildings that are tied up in a trust. That there was an airman that was stationed in... Oh, that's a great old story. The Dellinger Trust. Back in the 1980s when I worked at Channel 3, 
everyone was excited. I mean, the city was beside itself. This, this group called the Dellinger Trust came into downtown Shreveport during a period when downtown was suffering. It was at its height of suffering or, you know, part of the height of suffering. And they bought Shreve Square. I mean, the whole thing, like multiple buildings in Shreve Square. Uh, it used to be this vibrant place where you'd go down and listen to live music and there was food and bars and the spaghetti factory. And I mean, it was just a place where everybody came. But at that point, when the Dellinger Trust came in, the Shreve Square had pretty much died and ended. And so they came in and bought all these properties. And they bought multiple other properties around downtown for pennies on the dollar. They bought the old B'nai Zion Temple. They bought the Arlington. They bought a number of buildings in the 800 block of Texas Avenue, which is kind of right across the street from where the Common Park is going in, and just picked up, started picking up properties with the stated purchase of coming in and investing and making these properties wonderful again. And the story always was that Mr. Because nobody knew who Mr. Dellinger was. It's like this this figure from mythology hmm. and the story was that he had come through at some point maybe around World War II when he was a uh, you know going into the military and someone in Shreveport was very kind to him maybe put him up for the night or fed him a good meal or I don't know gave him encouragement or something but he had done well for himself so everyone's super excited and then over time it dawns the realization that they are not doing anything with these buildings, that these buildings are falling into more and more disrepair, and in fact, these buildings are caving in. So in the 800 block of Texas Avenue, there are at least two buildings that are no longer there. And one caved in, and then one the city of Shreveport had to demolish because it was falling onto the sidewalk below and creating a hazard. And then we started looking at the other buildings, like the B'nai Zion, and no work has been done on it. And there's water that sits in the basement and the roof has begun leaking and people are getting inside. And you know, when people can get inside, they can start fires like they were doing at the Arlington. Right. Multiple times per winter, the fire department was being called to the Arlington to put out fires. One fire could have taken that structure to the ground. And, uh, so getting, but the property taxes were being paid by and large. And so the city couldn't come and expropriate. In particular, they really didn't want to. That puts the city in such a difficult position. Because while the city can do that, it almost always leads to a lawsuit. And then once the city gets the property, they have to figure out what to do with it. And there are so many strings attached when it's a public entity that has done that. It's very difficult. So the city would prefer not to have sure. to be in that position. So for you know the properties that have been acquired with no intention of doing anything mm -hmm. to them, you outlined in one of your Shreveport Times articles that other cities have started implementing tax strategies to encourage property owners to at the very least maintain properties. Um, because I believe you said that there were certain um, folks in town that owned properties that wanted to tear them down to build parking lots, but certain regulations wouldn't allow them to do that. So therefore, they're just trying to let the building fall to the ground as a loophole. Um, so could you kind of walk us through what this tax strategy is that other cities are using and what would it take for Shreveport to actually start implementing um, these strategies? 
every city that has one of these strategies, it's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And it's very important as Shreveport looks at the possibility of this, that we develop one that works for us because the one that works in San Antonio may not be the right one for us. The one that works in Topeka, Kansas might not be the right one for us. But there's a whole bunch of them out there, so we are not inventing the wheel. We just have to find right. a good one. And the first thing that we need to do is what's called a vacant building registry. This is really important because in order to attack the problem, you have to realize what the problem is, how big the problem is, and what it's going to take to wrap your arms around it. So where are the vacant buildings? And I would suggest starting this downtown because we are a limited area, so it's easier. So we register, basically, all the vacant buildings. Where is it? Who owns it? What size it is? What, what was the last thing it was before it became vacant? So what's its historical use? Why is it vacant? And we pretty much know, because we work with all these buildings all the time, why it's vacant. We know if it's got a whole bunch of environmental issues. We know if it's if it looks like it's overpriced. We know if the owner is just unwilling to sell it or unwilling to do anything with it. So we get this registry, we take a look at it, and then other cities have done things like do uh, vacant building fees, basically. And the longer your building sits vacant, like maybe the first year, if you're on the vacant building list, it's going to cost you $500. And that money then is going to go into a fund that maybe that fund helps keep the buildings up. Right. Maybe that fund helps uh, market those buildings to potential owners. Maybe that fund, we would have to make those decisions. What, what does that money go into? Maybe that money goes to whatever entity it is that's doing all the work because there's going to be some time involved and, and employee hours involved in all of this. So, and then that becomes an escalating right. amount because $500 to a multimillionaire is not going to encourage that person to do anything with that sure. building. So maybe instead of it being $500, maybe it's based on square footage. Maybe whatever that fee is, is based on square footage. Now I want to be very clear. We are not taking property, and we would not advocate the sure, city, because we can't, DDA can't do anything like that, but we would not advocate the city take property. Property value, property ownership is sacrosanct. I mean, that's it's a very important part of what we are as, uh, as citizens. But what we are trying to do is encourage people to do something, to do something. Think about that building. If you're not able, willing, desirous of doing something with the building, at least be willing to allow someone to purchase it who is. And that's what, in the end, we're trying to do. There's also things called land value taxation. One of the things that's happened to us over the course of the years is this inverse kind of weird property tax system that we've gotten ourselves into. And it makes no sense to me, and it makes me mad. It makes me mad. And let me give you a scenario. Jordan, let's say that you, at great risk to yourself and to your investors, go and buy a historic building that has sat vacant for a number of years and has all sorts of problems that you see and probably a whole bunch of problems that you don't know about. But you buy that building and you are going to rehab that building into something that is going to make it fabulous for downtown. Apartments, retail, 
combination, whatever you want it to be. And so you go get the money from the bank, you sign the loan, you're on the hook for that loan, you or your investors, you invest in that building. Along the way, you figure out that it's gonna cost you even more money, you go to your family, you get money, you are taking all the risk. And you put it into that building and you open that building and kaboom, the first thing that happens is that building gets reassessed at a higher tax rate hmm. because you have taken risk and you've made it more wonderful. And in doing so, you have increased the value of your building, but you've also increased the value of everything around you. So you have made a positive difference for that entire block. Meanwhile, the guy next door to you is allowing his building to cave in. Right. He doesn't have any businesses in the building. There's nothing going on in that building. The building is not looking great and his assessment is going down because he's not getting any return on his building, you know, it's not generating any money. Is that fair? Shouldn't he be paying more because he is impacting negatively every building around him, pulling property values down, not doing anything to enhance the downtown or our community as a whole, so shouldn't his property value, his property tax be going up and your property tax on that building that you have taken this huge risk on, shouldn't they either be staying the same or even going down a little bit at least for some period of time to allow you to right. recoup your expenses? So that's kind of what a land value tax does. It takes a look and it says, okay, that, um, piece of property that's now a parking lot, an ugly surface parking lot <laughs> with, with no pretty you know, landscaping or anything that hasn't been paved in 50 years and they've made their money you know, a thousand times over on that parking lot, but that is assessed at a very low property tax rate because they let their building fall down and they made it into this ugly surface parking lot. Not saying the parking lots aren't needed, but that is, that is what is incentivizing. And so we've got kind of this reverse incentive going on mm. that incentivizes people to let their properties fall in right. because they're gonna be paying less on that property. They'll have that parking lot or so. And are these conversations mm -hmm. happening at Government yes. Plaza? Like yes. Are they, you're getting traction, feedback, and the possibility of actually doing something like this? People have been talking about this for some time, and I think it's just getting to that critical mass of people saying, this needs to be done. We are sick of this. You know, we are sick of just a few individuals who are creating significant problems not only for our downtown but think about all the vacant prop the vacant properties in our the I, we call them abandoned they're not they're just vacant houses in our neighborhoods that are bringing our neighborhoods down so yet yeah, cities are doing this uh, not only in their downtowns but across across their cities so yes and the article that I wrote for the Times one of the things that Jeff Siegler said in revitalize or die is that you've got to control your real estate to control your future. And by control, I don't mean own. Sure. You know, it's not that the city or the DDA, we don't want to own it. We would prefer not to. Right. But if, if we can't somehow have incentives or disincentives or 
something to encourage people to do something. And I don't even want to say do the right thing because that's going to vary depending on who the person is, but to get them off the bubble. If you've been sitting on a building for 30 years and you haven't done anything, it's time for somebody else to right. have the chance. Absolutely. Well, keep us posted because I'm, yeah. I'm very interested to, to um, see how that plays out. But switching over to some positive yeah, things, absolutely. right? Um, you've mentioned a couple of times the Common Park. Yes. So can you talk to us a little bit about what Shreveport Commons is and then the park that mm-hmm. day by day is getting greener and greener? Because um, I think that is going to be a big encouragement for yes. people to get downtown. Um, so can you talk us a little bit about what Shreveport Common is? I will. Back when Mayor Glover was in office, um, the Shreveport Regional Arts Council's home at Princess Park was burned in an arson fire. And so the city of Shreveport, after a deliberation, decided that they would be great in what was then the vacant central fire station because the fire station had moved up to North Common. And so the mayor said, hey, Shrek, we're going to give you, give, give. <laughs> there are always <laughs> strings attached. <laughs> right. We're going to give you this beautiful building and you go raise the money to rehab it. But by the way, we also want you guys to sort of be the cornerstone of this new nine block art and culture district that became known as Shreveport Common. And so Shrek never hesitating from any challenge, no matter how big, said, okay, yeah, we'll do that. (laughs) And they're like, what? (laughs) Wow, this is big. This is way outside of anything we've ever done. But over the years, and now that's been, gosh, probably, because it's 10 to 12, 10 years ago. The thing that I saw was the... the, 10-ish, 11 years. What would you even call that? The... Like renderings mm-hmm. of I think that had 2009 yeah. on the yeah so stuff we're, that we're I coming at. up on a decade yeah it's taken a while and they they drew the boundary of Shreveport Common and then they started working on things at first they started working on the Central Art Station and one of the things that they had adjacent to them was this whole area again where buildings had been demolished over time either demolished or had just caved in. So there was 1.7 acres of just foundations of buildings, very unattractive, nothing going on, no options. And one of the things that people were really talking about was urban green space. And when you think about downtown, we've got a lot of green space on the riverfront, and then we've got the little uh, courthouse square, which they really prefer for you not to roll around on the grass there and all that. So we needed some place to gather. And that's where the common park was was born. And it's coming to fruition. It is going to, I think the official opening is November the 2nd, but there's a big event that's happening October the 25th at Art Space to right. welcome the whole Rainbow family, uh, what is it? The, uh, smiles with you. Oh my gosh, Pam's going to kill me. <laughs> I've just blanked on the name. But anyhow, it's the big uh, Macy's it's a big art installation. Giving Day yeah. Parade yeah. stuff. And there, that's going to be down at the Common Park and there are going to be all sorts of events from brunches to performances to 
parties, uh, school kids, uh, everything you can imagine. And so the park is a catalyst. Mm. One of the reasons why we needed green space, we needed grass, but we also needed something. And the property owners around it were not feeling the love. They said, you know, we're in this area, it's kind of blighted, we're kind of on the fringes of what was believe, you know, thought to be historic downtown, and we would love for our government to, to uh, you know, respond in some tangible way that, that they care about us. And boy, has the city and the parish, have they ever. They've gone in and they've done some additional infrastructure, Grand Avenue, which is Elvis Presley Boulevard, going to Municipal Auditorium looks great. There's some infrastructure improvements. SWEPCO is coming in and putting in additional electrical vaults under the ground, things that you don't see but matter a lot. So there is a lot going on, and what that is going to do, it's unlocking some of the properties around there where people were just sitting on it saying, you know, if I put four or five million dollars in this property, as it sits now, the way things look around it, I might not ever make that money back. But with this green space across the street, I'm going to invest in my property. So that is really incentivizing that whole area into doing some great things. That's fantastic. And part of Shreveport Commons was also um, a big art project, right? Is it Uncommon Murals? Yes. Because uh, I lived in Austin, Texas for a while. I've been to Nashville multiple mm-hmm. times. And people just love the art, right? They love the street art. They do. Um, and I moved back to Streetport in 2016 and just somehow found myself downtown. Every time I turned a corner, I found a new a mural. mural. And I'm like, why is no one in Streetport talking about this? Why are we not down there taking our pictures like we do in Nashville, like mm-hmm. we do in Austin. Um, and the DDA, you guys have a list of mm-hmm. all of the murals, right? We do. We have a list of all of the public art downtown, but people do come downtown and take pictures. It's always funny to me when I walk around a corner or go down an alley and I'll see somebody taking high school yearbook photos or prom photos or wedding photos. People love our brick walls. They love that concrete uh, base that's on Cotton Street right across from the DDA office that's the base of an old Mm. water tower for when the steam engines came by up on the hill above. They love taking pictures in front of those murals. So I think that that is something that people come downtown and seek out. Those murals are incredible and they're not painted on, just FYI. Those are the vinyl murals. But we have painted murals, we have vinyl murals, we have bronze statues, so we have a little bit of everything. We had the beaded uh, blankets for a while, and then we had like an F1 tornado come through and it blew out, unfortunately, some of those. So the the Shrek is looking at how to replace those. And as soon as the Texas Street Bridge is completed, then the neon, I call it neon, but it'll be LED lighting will go back on that bridge. And so the iconic, when I first came to the DDA, if you Googled, downtown Shreveport, the first 27 pages had neon bridge photos. That's how many times that had been photographed and how iconic it was to downtown Shreveport. And for us to have lost that, it was it was a loss. It really was. So that over time when the neon just broke and it wasn't functioning as well and then when they had to do the repair on the bridge, but I'm very excited about that. How can people stay in touch with you? You have a Facebook page, right? Oh, absolutely. We've got, we have multiple pages that we manage, but the two that have lots of information, I would encourage you to like the Shreveport DDA Facebook page. 
Our website is constantly updated, downtownshreveport.com. We send out an e-blast every Thursday, which is a wrap-up of news and events. Please get on the e-blast list. We do a first Wednesday art walk. I would encourage everyone to come. So much fun. It's free, all ages. We also Twitter, we do Instagram, so we are everywhere. We're hashtag cool downtown or hashtag downtown Shreveport. So keep up with us. There's a whole bunch of ways you can. Definitely um, follow them across all platforms because you, you do a fantastic job of giving us behind the scene looks at new buildings that is just so encouraging. And then you guys do history spotlights. Yes. And I started the blog, I Heart Shreveport. I know, I love it. Um, the posts that get the most traction are the ones that talk about the history of the buildings. Like people are craving that history, like wanting to know where we came from um, to help guide us with where we're going. One of my favorite finds, and, and this is just how behind I am, um, oh gosh, the Calanthian Temple. Yes. Like learning about yeah. the history Cora of Cora Allen and the whole, yes. Built the tallest building in the U.S. at the time. Yes. It was an African-American woman, 1925. Yes, it was I mean, It was the just, tallest building built by African-American female, and it was right here in Shreveport, Louisiana. And that whole Texas Avenue was a remarkable place for not only um, business people, but all kinds of entertainment. There were the biggest names of the day used to come to the Calanthian rooftop, used to come to the Playmore and several other locations. Really really remarkable history. We have a really rich African-American history here locally. I spoke to Chris Brown. We were talking about the Shreveport Sun Mm -hmm. and he was saying, we were speaking about how to uh, basically take those old newspapers, like how they get digitized and how they preserve those things. And he was saying that, you know, the way that you lay those things out and photograph them, especially if there's one very, very fragile copy, it can be very expensive and you know, you potentially are going to destroy something to try to save it. Save it, um, because he was saying that there they have in their archive uh, for the Sun. They they go all the way back to I th- believe the mid twenties, and he's like, in some of those papers they have one copy, one full copy wow. that is you can't really even touch it or it, it oh, just wow. will fall apart. Um, but that. You know, that's there's a, a bunch of history that, you know, is preserved, but I don't know how well it's, uh, you know, I don't know a lot about it, and I've, I've lived here most of my life. So um, I'm really, in talking to him, I got really interested in, like, how do I find out more about, you know, certain places that things happened or people lived or like this this building, like that was a huge building. Mm-hmm. Um, it had doctors, it had uh, lawyers in it, it had, I mean, it was all professional people right. who chose to uh, have their business in that in that building along one of the most mm-hmm. vibrant uh, African-American business and entertainment strips in the South. So it is remarkable. You know, we are very lucky that when you're talking about history, we had a father and son team um, the Grables, who were photographers and had airplanes. And so from the early 1900s up until I think about the 1950s, they documented Shreveport in a way that many towns and cities were not documented. Mm. And almost all of those photographs are at the archives at LSUS that anybody can go take a look at. 
and you can purchase them if you want and you know blow them up and put them on your wall but we have we are so lucky with the Sanborn maps with the city directories the Shreve Memorial Library the main branch downtown is a huge resource for a lot of that the archives we have history with Eric Brock's books and Gary Joyner who's still writing books and Cheryl White and you know we we just continue to unearth this fascinating history about ourselves and you're exactly right Jordan when we when we post something that's about the history of a building on our Facebook pages you know our likes and shares just go through the roof people are very engaged in that and that the, that resource at I've looked at a bunch of that stuff at the archive and it's um, I in talking to Chris because Chris is uh, you know I mean he's an archivist he's the archivist for centenary oh and he's wonderful his music and, archives are unbelievable well we were speaking about eric brock and saying like he sort of was um he had kind of a macro vi like version of kind of how everything fit together and now with him you know he passed away fairly young mm -hmm. and i was talking to chris I was like would you pick up that mantle and he's like no i'm really interested in these parts but he's like if you step back for a second there it would be a collection of people there's no eric brock left but there each there is a group of you know each one of those groups of things that you know history or buildings or music or religion or you know city politics any of that stuff like there's a group or a person and he's like that's what happens now he's like someone will call me and ask me something and i can't maybe i can't tell them but i can say Oh, call, call Jordan. Yeah. Jordan, she is. She knows like Winston Hall. Like like he'll know, you know, all, all this stuff because he's very interested in the municipal auditorium, mm -hmm. and he goes out and he researches, and then he'll talk to Chris Brown, and then there, that sort of music mm -hmm. part, um, they sort of connect on that, and then a third person will come in and say, oh well, the architect that built that, and then that person then comes in as like oh, this person knows about all this architecture. And it's it's really interesting to, I think now we're, we're sort of at the point where we can start connecting those pieces just via like, you know, the computer. Like you can start putting those things all together where people- The computer people, is unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, we have a, I would encourage people to get um, a subscription to newspapers.com. Yeah. Oh my gosh, there's so much that has been digitized from the Shreveport Times. There used to be a newspaper paper called the Caucasian. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, I know. <laughs> but um, all those stories, all that history that's there at your fingertips now, that it used to be so difficult to access. You used to have to go in the vault and wear the gloves, right. or you know, if you were lucky enough to know where the vault was. So yeah, it's out there. Yeah, it's really interesting that it's it's out there and people are starting to get interested and, and look at it and talk about it. Um, and I think that'll hopefully sort of give people Spur, kind of the, yes. the, the push to, to you know be interested and engage and say, hey, wait a minute, this building's been sitting here for how long and nobody's done anything with it? Let's either let's encourage them to be involved or, you know, it away from them or I've got a great I've got a great little tidbit that goes along with what you're saying Mark Prevo who's a local architect and he bought the George Bishop building which is that beautiful building on Spring Street the 600 block which is where his office 
and the 601 Spring Event Center is beautiful building, built in the 1920s, got a great history behind it. George Bishop did not build the building, he just named the building after himself when he bought it. Right. <laughs> and then he lost the building pretty quickly and there looked like there were some shenanigans with the bank because the bank acquired the building for $5,000. George Bishop had put way more, even in 1920s dollars, he had put over $80,000 into the building. So, you know, really interesting, but it had been vacant for a while when Mark bought it, and he took that risk. He got this historic building, he put money into it, made it wonderful, made it contributing. And when I was interviewing him for an article, I said, how does it feel to own a piece of history? And he said, you never own a piece of history. He said, you're just the caretaker for the next generation. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, that was, that's a car, that was a car dealership it as well. A, it was. It There's was so many in, I've been doing a bunch of research and that's, it's interesting because now if you think of a car lot, you think of a, a sort of a sprawling, you have a one, one central building and then a, a lot of parking lot around it mm -hmm. to park all of the vehicles and the vehicles are of a certain size but in the 20s like you're saying when people started to be able to get cars you would come downtown to get go yourself to a car and the, the and the showroom. showroom would be a three or four mm -hmm. five floor mm -hmm. garage and that's how you, you would go in the bottom floor and look at the cars but if you had service done or or any of those those things happened because of the you, you didn't have space to to go outward you just went up right. and a lot of those buildings like Prevost building and and all of that stuff Spring Street Texas there um, on Edwards all of those places had lots of car lots where the federal courthouse was like a used car lot and mm -hmm. if you look at before the Beck building was there like those were were homes next to like big uh, car lots mm -hmm. um, that were stacked. Yeah, so downtown it is. It's at, as you go through the blocks and you look at the buildings that are there now, I always encourage people, consider what might have been there before. It's really easy to figure it out. Um, there may have been a livery stable there in the early 1900s. That, there's a place called Cooper's Mule Barn. I'm dying to you know, name a building Cooper's Mule Barn. <laughs> but, you know, just all sorts of things. Anything that you needed, you could find in, in downtown right. Shreveport. And a lot of them, you know, this fun history. What was in the Missing Link building originally? It was a department store. That was the Hutchinson. That is the Hutchinson right. building. The Hutchinson building has a really interesting history in that it was not built to be six floors. It was built to be five floors. And the contractor in the early 1900s missed a deadline and in his contract it stated if he missed his deadline he had to build another floor for free so they oh, wow. got a free they got a free um, floor and it's been a number of things for a while it was an IBM I think it, it's IBM sales computer or uh, uh, IBM Xerox machine you know so machine you know sales. that it, it exploded exploded mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. was crazy I got to sit mm -hmm. down with Miss Patty Horn mm -hmm. um, for a piece I was doing and she was showing me pictures of like the windows it all over the street. The front out. I mean, it someone came in. So <laughs> the Xerox machines were where the kitchen are now, mm -hmm. and someone happened to flip a switch, and it just like blew all the machines, and like from the back all the way to the front, blew yeah. out the windows. Yeah. Right across from the courthouse. That had to be pretty, pretty scary. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a lot of fun when you get yeah, to absolutely. explore these buildings. But I know that 
um, your time's coming to an end. So I was hoping that you could maybe just give us a preview of the things that we can look forward to over the you know, next six to 12 months in downtown. Well, a couple of things that are going to be happening, obviously, the Every Man a King Distillery, which is going to be huge, and I'm, I'm personally predicting later 2020. That's a big project. I know they would like to get finished in earlier 2020, but I always, just because I've done this before, I always factor in a few extra months for those unexpected uh, delays. We're going to see, obviously, the opening very soon of the Common Park. We're going to see the opening of the Andrus Artist and Entrepreneur uh, building, which I think probably might be in late 2020, maybe a little after that, depending on what his timeline is. We're also going to see a concerted effort down in the legislature to ex to extend the state historic tax credit, mm. which is incredibly important for downtown, for all downtowns around the state. And right now that is due to sunset in December 2021. We desperately need that to be extended that goes directly into these buildings. These buildings then become more vibrant parts of our community for years to come. So that's going to be a big, big push. We'll be talking more about what we do with vacant properties and how we, how we position our public resources when it comes to those vacant properties. There are a number of developers who are just circling downtown looking at different things. Some are looking at a little grocery market. Some are looking at office space. Some are looking at additional apartment spaces. So we're going to see more of those kind of things happen. We've got, you know, multiple buildings that at any moment somebody's going to make the offer on them and we'll be able to make that announcement. So the future continues to look uh, vibrant for downtown, but we would encourage people, this is what I need folks to do. Um, not everybody, wants to own an old building. Not everybody, you know, has the wherewithal or the desire or that's what they want to do. But but I want everyone to consider coming downtown and participating in something. An art walk, which is free. Something going on at the Common Park. Go to the Robinson Film Center. Go to the Strand. Go to our festivals. If we don't participate, those things will cease to exist. They're a lot of work. They cost money. They take time. If people aren't enjoying them, we're not going to do them. It, it's more than just saying that you love downtown or you love something or you want something to exist. You've got to be an active participant. So be an active participant. Absolutely. Well, my last question kind of ties into one of my first questions. When I asked you how do we define a successful downtown, mm -hmm. you said it's a downtown that we can be proud of. So what are you most proud of of our downtown's report? I am most proud of our community realizing that downtown matters, mm. that downtown is where we started, it's important to us without a vibrant, strong, diverse downtown that our community suffers. Right. Absolutely. Well, Thomas, is there any final questions that we didn't cover? I know we only had an hour together. We could have gone another two hours. Well, we'll, well, we can go again. Absolutely. That would be great. Well, thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Um, and again, just thank you for all of the hard work and commitment that you give to our downtown. We're, oh, you're we're very, very welcome. indebted to you and the work that you and your office does. Well, I'm, I'm very lucky that I have a job that my vocation and avocation are one and the same. I love my job. I love downtown. I would work 
for and with downtown, whether it was my job or not. So I'm pretty lucky.